Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's take our Bibles in hand and open together to the third chapter of the book of Romans. Romans chapter 3, verses 19 through 26 is our text this Sunday morning. I went to the dentist last week for a cleaning. I'll tell you a secret. I don't enjoy going to the dentist. So much so that for a long time I didn't. Until seven or eight months ago, the pain in my mouth became so intense that I gave in and made an appointment. And two root canals later, life is much better. And for some of you, these sermons that G.H. referred to in his prayer have been a month-long root canal. (laughs) Week after week, the Apostle Paul has drilled home his primary argument that everyone stands guilty before a righteous God and deserving of his just wrath. And just when you think it's over, he drills down again. All of us, I think, are ready for some relief, and we find it today in our text. The gospel is sort of like that. For those of us who are believing in it, the gospel is um, the power of God unto salvation. But for those who are not believing, the gospel is foolishness. And like that dentist chair, something to be avoided at all costs. I was reminded of that last week when one of our men approached me before the service and began telling me the story of how many years ago God used a message from a pastor on Romans chapter 3 to convict him of his personal sin and to draw him into saving faith. And God has used the book of Romans as the means to draw countless millions to Christ. And I pray over the next two years as we study each verse of these chapters, he would use it to bring about revival in my own heart in this church and in our city. And so let's read our text this morning, Romans chapter 3, beginning of verse 19. Paul writes, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God, because by the works of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. May the Lord add his blessing to the hearing and the reading of this, his word. Now, you remember that in this section of scripture, Paul is like a prosecuting attorney. He's bringing charges and evidence against all humanity. He begins with the most obviously guilty, I take it, the pagan Gentiles who were known for idolatry and sexual deviations of all kind, homosexuality, um, drunkenness, disobedience to parents. He goes down a long list of their sins. And I think he's anticipating that the more moral and ethical people in society would say, that's right, Paul, amen. 
Those people are deserving of judgment. You're saying it right. And just as they're getting comfortable, he turns his attention to them. And he says, you moral and religious folk are guilty too, because when you stand in judgment of others, you at the same time are guilty of the same sins yourself. And then he reserves his harshest criticism for his own countrymen, the Jews. And he tells them that they also are without excuse and will one day stand before their creator in judgment. Now, before he gives the good news, and the gospel is good news, beginning in verse 19, he summarizes the bad news. And so the title of the message today is Summation. Paul, the attorney, is summing up his arguments, but he also gives the solution because after Paul, the prosecutor, gives his summary, he offers the solution to the sin problem. So the first thing that we see is man's inability is exposed in verses 19 and 20. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. That phrase, now we know, uh, that's the, accepted as fact, especially among Jewish people. It's, it's uh, not disputed. He is directing this at those who are under the law. He says those that are under the law. Now, who is under the law? Well, we've seen in his arguments that includes everyone. Certainly, it includes the Jewish folks that have the written law, the uh, tables that God gave Moses. But it includes everyone because, as Paul says, that all without excuse because God has written his law upon their hearts. They have a conscience. They have general revelation to show us what God is like. And then he gets to the purpose of the law. Many people in that day assumed that the law was a measuring stick by which they could celebrate the fact that they had achieved a certain level that God was acceptable with. Paul says that's not the case at all. He says there's two primary purposes of the law. He says one, to close every mouth, and two, to hold all men accountable. Remember, Paul has systematically rebutted all of the primary objections. He's heard them before in other cities that he's preached to. He's anticipating these folks having the same objections. The Gentiles would say, well, God, God, you can't judge us because we're not your chosen people. We didn't have a Moses in our history and we didn't have the written law. Therefore, you can't judge us. And then he's anticipating the moral people saying, we're good people. We didn't kill anybody. We're certainly not as bad as those pagans. And then he anticipate his Jewish friends saying, Paul, don't you remember? We're God's chosen people. We have a special relationship. We have the law. We go to synagogue every Saturday. We hear it read. And don't forget, Paul, we have the sign of circumcision so that we'll never forget that we're right with God. And, and Paul says, you've misunderstood all these things. You've misunderstood stood the reason God chose a people unto himself, which was to glorify himself. And he quotes Isaiah, remember, and said, instead, you've caused the Gentiles to blaspheme me. You misunderstood the law. You thought that you could live up to it when it was a standard showing that you couldn't live up to it so that you would seek a savior. And you misunderstood circumcision. He says, it's not the outward circumcision. It's the circumcision of the heart that makes one a true Jew. So this is what a right view of God's holiness does. It closes our mouth. It shuts us up, doesn't it? We don't talk about our righteousness or our works. We see Isaiah in Isaiah 6, seeing the Lord high and lifted up and his train filled the temple. And he didn't say, here's my resume, God. He said, woe is me for I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. The apostle Paul, who at one time in his life did boast his credentials, his bona fides, his resume, 
He said, I was a Hebrew of the Hebrew, of the tribe of Benjamin, Pharisee of the Pharisees, as touching the law blameless. And then he saw the Shekinah glory of the risen Lord Jesus, and his mouth was closed. Not just his eyes were blinded, his mouth was closed, and all he could say was, Lord, what would you have me to do? I think of Thomas, doubting Thomas, we call him, one of the original apostles who said, I won't believe unless I touch his hands and his side. And when he saw the holiness of the risen Lord Jesus, he said, my Lord and my God. In other words, all of his objections were stopped in an instant. That's what the law does. It stops our objections and it holds us accountable to a holy God. I've said many times from this pulpit, the law is a mirror to our souls. It shows us that we are dirty and unclean and God is just in judging us and that makes us accountable to him. We can't say we didn't know. God gave us the law in our hearts and he gave us the written word in his special revelation. And so Paul is declaring that the purpose of the law is not to save anyone any more than the purpose of the mirror in your bathroom is to give you a bath. It couldn't be any clearer than he is in verse 20 when he says, because the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That was never the purpose of the law, in other words. Well, I promise that there was some relief coming in our text today, and we find it beginning in verse 21 with an incredibly important conjunction. We saw important conjunction when we were reading Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 10 a moment ago, where Paul lays us bare as guilty, and he says, but now. Here we see a similar thing, but now, we see God's righteousness revealed in verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. In other words, Paul is saying God's righteousness is on display in his special revelation. At the time that Paul wrote this, the only special revelation they had was the Old Testament. Now we have the full canon of Scripture. So we could say it today that God's righteousness is on display in the Bible. His attributes and power and creativity are on display in nature, in what we call general revelation. But his righteousness is clearly seen in Scripture because he has chosen to reveal it. Let's not forget, had God not in his sovereignty chosen to reveal himself to us, we would have never found him. We would be flailing about in the darkness. Now sometimes... When the Bible employs the term righteous or righteousness or some form of that word, it is speaking of moral or ethical excellence. Sometimes it says so-and-so was a righteous person. That's, of course, uh, compared to other people. But when we talk about God's righteousness, it's distinct and different and unique. Now, certainly it's true that God is righteous morally and ethically. He's altogether good. He is the standard of righteousness. But remember, in this text, back from chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 3, verse 20, Paul is wearing his lawyer's hat. So as with many other texts, in, in the case, um, this case, the phrase righteousness of God has to do with a legal matter. That is, the legal matter of making a guilty person righteous or imputing righteousness from one to another. It speaks of how God can rightly and justly declare a guilty person acquitted, no longer guilty. 
And Paul says the way God does it is not through the keeping of the law. Look what he says. Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed. Many of his peers thought that's how we obtain God's righteousness is by keeping of the law. He says, no, in fact, that was never the purpose of the law. If there is to be righteousness, it has to come apart from the law. And what he is doing is clarifying in reality the purpose and the meaning of the Old Testament scriptures. That's what Jesus did when he came, right? He read about uh, the Messiah in the Old Testament as he stood in the synagogue and he said, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He clarified for them the meaning of the law. And that's what we call progressive revelation. That is since the beginning of time, since God created the heaven and the earth, as time moves forward, he is clarifying who he is, what he's like, what his plan is. And now we see it being clarified here, the purpose of the law. And so that's our third point. Scriptures meaning clarified. Look at verse 21 again. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. But it is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. This is what Paul has been saying about judgment. There is no distinction between the most pagan Gentile and the most religious Jew. If they sin, they stand guilty before a righteous judge. Now he's saying when it comes to salvation, there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. It is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all who believe, there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. Here's that relief we've been longing for this past month of sermons. See, the scriptures bear witness that salvation is not by works righteousness, or another way of saying it, salvation is not by keeping the law, hear this, because no one ever has, other than the Lord Jesus Christ. So the only way we can be right with a holy God is for a holy God to impute his righteousness to us because we have none. Remember Paul's scriptural machine gun we saw last week. <laughs> At the end of his arguments, unless someone was about to open their mouth with one more objection, he keeps firing this rapid fire series of verses that he takes from the Old Testament. There's none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. And their mouths were stopped. Well, that begs the question, if we can't be made righteous by keeping the law, and we can't, if we need God's righteousness to be made right with him, and we do, how then do we appropriate the righteousness of God? That's a good question, isn't it? It's a question that Job asked in the Old Testament, how can a man be right with God? It's the most important question, I think, in all the universe. How do we appropriate the righteousness of God? Verse 22 tells us. But it is the righteousness of God through faith. See, that, there's an opposition there. No one can be saved through the law. No one ever has, no one ever will. But instead, it is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. Now, when you see that 
phrase through faith in your Bible. You can just parenthetically right in front of it put the word appropriated. That is salvation is appropriated. We get in on it by the means of faith in Jesus Christ. And then he adds again for all who believe. There's no distinction in other words. Through faith in Christ and of course, faith equals belief and trust in the person and work of Jesus. I hear people saying all the time, my faith got me through. They go through some natural disaster and the newspaper reporter asks them, how did they make it through in my faith? But rarely do they say what their faith is in. People have faith in all sorts of things. A lot of people have faith in faith. Our faith is grounded and rooted in reality. Our faith is in none other than Christ alone. What he did, not some vague concept of spirituality. Our faith is in Christ, in his sinless life. I think we undervalue that portion of the gospel and skip over it too much. We want to get to the cross. And the cross, of course, the climax of human history. But the cross would not be atoning unless Christ had lived a perfect life. Remember, Paul talks about in Philippians how he condescended, he emptied himself and took on human flesh, but he was tempted in every way we are, yet without sin, Christ died for us. His sinless life, his, literary, his literal rather, substitutionary atonement. Some liberal theologians say, well, Christ didn't really die for sins. This was some sort of spiritual transaction that took place. No, Scripture says that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. And all those Old Testament sacrifices, those sheep and goats and bulls and pigeons, they were all a foreshadowing, a great prophetic forward looking to that day at just the right moment in time where the second person of the Trinity in human form would lay down his life for the substitute in the place of all who would believe. His sinless life his literal substitutionary death, and his bodily resurrection. Paul points this out in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. There were those who were diminishing the importance of the literal bodily resurrection. There are those today who are a little bit embarrassed about the miracle claims of the Bible. They know the scientific and the academic community sort of looks down on us if we believe in the literal nature of the miracle claims of the Bible. I'm teaching on Wednesday night um, through our Baptist faith and message. And I was reminded that in 1925, there was a great controversy going on among evangelicals and Christians about what to do with Charles Darwin. And uh, it was being popularized in the public school system to teach evolutionary biology and to diminish the literal creation narrative. And a lot of the denominations said, well, we won't survive unless we adopt and try to implement Darwinian evolution into our theology. And I'm so grateful for men like E.Y. Mullins, who stood up and said, no, we Baptists believe the Bible is true. And so they wrote the Baptist faith and message, and we still hold to it today as our doctrinal statement here at First Baptist Keller. Because... If we can't believe in the creation narrative, we can't believe that a dead man lived. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if a dead man didn't live, we are of all men most to be pitied. But thanks be to God, there is a resurrection, not only of Christ, he's the first fruit of many who will be resurrected. You see, uh, John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world 
that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him, put their faith and trust in his person and work. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, salvation is by grace through faith. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. And friends, hear this. This is the fundamental difference, the fundamental difference between biblical Christianity and every other religion in the world that is not called biblical Christianity is that we teach that salvation is by grace alone, appropriated by faith alone in Christ alone. It's not faith plus anything. In the next service, we're going to baptize an 84-year-old woman who most of her life was taught that salvation is by faith plus the sacraments. Faith plus purgatory at the end of life. No, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not faith plus anything. And the glorious truth is just as all men are without excuse, all who will believe will be saved. For all those who believe, there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. The easiest way to remember it is like this. The ground at the cross is level. All are guilty, all have sinned, all need a savior, all are in need of being justified. Speaking of this word justified, we have several vocabulary terms here in these verses we need to get a firm grasp of. Don't be afraid to study theology. You need a working knowledge of some vocabulary words that will help you put some hooks on the wall that you can hang your theology upon. One is justification. Paul used this word. It's a legal term. Remember, he's thinking of himself as a prosecuting attorney. He's in a courtroom. And this term justification means that God treats a sinner because of his faith in Christ, as if he has no sin. He doesn't say he doesn't have any sin. He treats him as if he has no sin, based not on the person's record, but upon the righteousness of his son. Remember, tempted in all ways as we are yet without sin, Christ died for us. And so the righteousness of Jesus through faith is imputed to the sinner who repents, and the sin of the sinner is transferred to Christ upon the cross. What a wonderful transaction that is. God then pounds the gavel in his courtroom and says, not guilty based upon the righteousness of my son. Then there's a word redemption here. Redemption through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. The word redemption, redeem, means to pay back. I was telling my interns this week about the first video game machine I ever saw at the IGA grocery store in Sugarlock, Mississippi in 1981. And the kids in town would line up to put their quarter in the machine. It was the only one in town. And my brother and I used to walk the ditches to find Coke bottles to redeem for a nickel until we had five of them to go play Pac-Man. And that's a silly metaphor, but it helps you to remember to redeem means to purchase back. And what God did is he purchased those who are in the slave market of sin, all sinners who would believe, all who put their faith in them, and the purchase price was the blood of God's dear son. And we celebrated that truth last week. You remember when we took the Lord's Supper? 
And we looked at that juice in our little cup, and I said, it's the color of blood. And that's to remind us of two things, the great love with which he loved us and the high cost of our sin. And the high cost of our sin is astronomical. It is the most precious commodity in the universe. It is the very life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he says, this is a salvation that comes by grace. In fact, what he says here, and some of your translations may say, he gives this gift freely. That's a redundancy because by definition, a gift is free. But he wants us to understand, again, that it's nothing we can do. It's not by the keeping of the law. It's not by self-reformation. It's a gift as opposed to a wage. A wage is something you have earned and you deserve. The Bible says the wages of sin is what? Death. But... The gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. Well, fourthly and finally, in verses 25 and 26, we see God's justice satisfied. God's justice is satisfied at the cross. Whom God displayed, he's speaking of Jesus, this one's for all sacrifice, his own son, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood, through faith. Again, he's saying it's appropriated through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in God's merciful restraint, he let the sins previously committed go unpunished for the demonstration that he is of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Paul points out that God displayed Jesus publicly. It was not a quiet and private and dignified death that we all hope for. They took him out to the public square and beat him within an inch of his life. They paraded him down the Via de la Rosa until he was too exhausted to carry his own cross. And, and then they conscripted someone from the crowd and he took it the rest of the way up that hill they call Golgotha. And they dropped that beam into the ground with a thud and they raised Jesus up suspended between heaven and earth. This was a public display, an open air crucifixion. And the purpose of that is to show that God's justice had been satisfied. He calls it propitiation. Now, I know that's a seminary word, but you need to know it. It means satisfaction. See, we sometimes think of God as that grandfather figure that uh, wouldn't harm a flea that doesn't pay any attention to the misbehavior of his kids or grandkids. That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is presented as just. That is, he must punish sin. He's omniscient. He knows every sin that's been committed and he hates it. Remember, Paul starts in Romans 18 talking about the wrath of God being revealed. That is his fixed disposition is anger against sin all the time. And ultimately, that anger, that sense of justice against sin must be satisfied. And it was through the substitutionary atonement of Jesus on the cross. And Paul calls this propitiation. Our staff and our deacons are working through a little book that we purchased for them called What is the Gospel? It's only eight chapters long. can be read in two hours. It's by... 
gentleman from East Texas who went up to Yale for his uh, undergraduate and on the Southern Seminary. And he's a wonderful communicator. His name is Greg Gilbert. And we're going to make this study available to the rest of the church uh, later on this year. The plan is, and the hope and the prayer, is that we have a goal that every one of the over 2,000 members of this church could clearly articulate the answer to the question, what is the gospel? The Bible says we ought to be able to do that, doesn't it? Be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within us. And this book is, is simple, but um, in his book, he says that unfortunately many people have a notion that God is like an unscrupulous janitor. I thought, what in the world? He said, yeah, an unscrupulous janitor sweeps dirt under the rug and never deals with it. And they have the notion that's what God's like. Yes, he sees the dirt. He knows someone ought to do something about that, but he's unwilling to do it. And so he just sweeps it under the rug and it's never dealt with. That's not the God of the Bible. God must deal with sin. And he either deals with it on your behalf at the cross through Jesus, or you will deal with it the day you stand before him in judgment. And Paul points out here that just because God has not yet dealt with your sin doesn't mean he won't. There's a world of people who constantly presume on the grace of God. They sin and don't repent. And they say, well, I got away with that. Let me try it again. And they do it again. They get away with it, so they think, and it becomes a lifetime until they're stiff-necked and stubborn and their sin no longer even bothers their conscience. They're so insensitive to it, and they think, well, God has not sinned, so he won't ever deal with my sin. He'll never judge it. And Paul says it's because of his merciful restraint in the past. He has let sins previously committed go unpunished for the demonstration of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and justifier. He will deal with sin. He has dealt with sin for all who believe at the cross and he will deal with sin at judgment. Listen to what we read of God in Exodus 34. Remember Moses has received the law. He got angry and broke the tablets when he saw the people behaving the way they were went back up on the mountain and God gave him the law the second time. Verse six, then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious and slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquities, transgressions and sin. That's what people like about God, right? He's slow to anger. He's merciful. He doesn't zap us dead usually every time we tell a white lie. And so we relish that and we presume upon that grace and we forget the last phrase of that verse says, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. He must deal with sin. And so the way he did it was an ingenious way that allowed him, Paul says, that he would be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. If God didn't punish sin, he wouldn't be a just judge, would he? We wouldn't put up for a minute with a judge in Tarrant County who just dismissed everyone's cases and never put anybody in jail. 
and let murderers roam free. We wouldn't say, what a great judge. We go, that guy's unjust. We've got to recall him and replace him with a just judge. And yet when God, in his constraint and his mercy and his forbearance, doesn't judge our sin immediately, we say, yeah, that's a good judge. Right? And yet he says he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. He must be the just. If he's a just God, he has to punish sin. But he's also the justifier. He is known, he is declared by Moses here to be the one who forgives iniquity, transgression at the sin. So how could he be both just and the merciful justifier? Well, he did it at the cross, didn't he? At the cross, God's mercy, which is who he is, and his justice, which is who he is, kissed. That is, God's justice doesn't do violence to his mercy and vice versa. Now, we, we find that hard to believe or comprehend because in our mind, you can either be merciful or you can be just, but you can't be both. But God is. He's both merciful and just. And so in conclusion, I'd ask you a simple question. What about you? Some of you have been coming for five straight weeks and we've talked about the just wrath of God that's coming. And I would ask you, what are you depending on? If you would die today, and you might, what reason would you have to give to your creator when you stand before him on why he should allow you into his heaven? You may begin to say, well, I've, I've been thinking about that, Pastor, and I, I've, got some, uh, I've got some objections to raise to God. Why my circumstance is unique and worthy of his consideration. I, I've got some uh, things in my past that put me at a disadvantage. Do you know what Paul says is going to happen that day? Same thing that happened to Isaiah. Same thing that happened to him on the road to Damascus. Same thing that happened to Thomas when he wanted to object to the holiness of the Lord Jesus. Every mouth will be stopped. No excuses. You won't have a thing to say to the Lord. The only hope that any human being will have on that day is this. And we sang it in that song a moment ago. Did you hear it? To this I hold, my only hope is Jesus. That is his imputed righteousness through faith that God the Father, the righteous judge of the universe, would see not my record, but the record of righteousness of his son, appropriated by faith and pound his gavel and say, acquitted, not guilty. No one's going to heaven because they kept the law. No one's going to heaven because they were a better neighbor than 90% of others. The only way anyone will go to heaven is through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and faith in him. Jesus said it this way to his disciples in John chapter 14, using the definite article, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father. No one comes to the Father except through me. What about you? Have you put your faith in what Christ did on the cross what he did through his perfect life, what he did through his literal bodily resurrection, are you still clinging tenaciously to some illogical hope that you're going to be able to negotiate with God for your soul? Friend, you will not. Surrender. Bow your knee. Receive Christ through faith. Let's pray. Father, in the silence of the moment, the Holy Spirit is working, convicting of sin and judgment and righteousness. 
taking the proclaimed word and quickening it to our hearts, causing us to believe it, showing us our guilt. And Father, I do agree with your assessment of not only all of humanity, but upon me. Guilty is the verdict, rightly so. And yet the plea is for mercy and not for justice. Lord, we need mercy. We need to get what we don't deserve, which is your grace. And Father, you offer it freely to all who would believe. You say it so many times in your word. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, if we believe in the person and work of Jesus, that he died in our place, that he stood as our substitute, and then you impute his righteousness to us, and therefore you can remain just, but also justify us. And Lord, I pray you do that. There's so many in this room who've experienced that free gift and are living in it. Lord, I must believe in a room with this many people, there, there are likely some who know you not. Lord, I pray you would silence their objections in their heart and in their mouth. And when they stand before you in silence, Father, I pray then that you would do the miracle work of your effectual call and grant them faith and repentance. And then, Father, grant them the boldness to publicly profess that faith far and wide. And it begins through believer's baptism and it extends for a lifetime. Lord, I pray you do this multiple times over. Lord, would you send an awakening and a revival in this place today. And may it be manifested through the fruit of souls brought into the kingdom. Would you do this for your own namesake and for your own glory? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.